Welcome to this very special writer's edition of Lave Radio. I'm your host, second technician, Fozzer Forrester, and joining us in what feels like positively spacious for this episode, although I confess it's not up to his normal standards, the Grand High Imperial Poobar himself, Senator Drew Wagar. Welcome, sir. Hello, Commander Fozzer, and it's a pleasure to be back in this rather dingy orange sidewinder <laughs> once again. Hey, we've cleaned this especially just for you. <laughs> Are the uh, seat tilt mechanism or the chair still not working there? Uh, no, I, 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 I do mean to get around to that. I've, you know, I, I just, yeah, I just haven't really had the time in the what three years since you last joined <laughs> us in this Orange Sidewinder. Is, is it really that long? It just, will be uh, somewhere around three years. Yeah. Um, just before we started recording, you, you said that uh, how long is it since that your original Kickstarter was funded? It is literally almost four four years to the day. I think it was yesterday. November 30th in 2012 that I funded my Kickstarter, which obviously was a pledge on the other Kickstarter, which is the game, <laughs> uh, which is a very long and boring story now, which I'm sure most people know about. But yeah, four years. That's mad, isn't it? It is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. It does make you sit back and wonder what the heck you've been doing with those four years, because the Kickstarter just seemed, I wouldn't say yesterday, but it certainly doesn't seem like it was four years in the past. No, no, it's still kind of there in your mind as a, a thing that happened that was was quite big but four years it's um yeah it's a big chunk of big chunk of time it is it's a massive chunk of time especially considering what uh, what we're now playing compared to you know what first launched but before we go into any of that let's just say um first up on the off chance uh, it, it really is an off chance that those people listening to this that have not come across you before i know it's hard to imagine but could is it possible if you just give us a brief history on your background within the elite dangerous universe well in fact just the elite universe <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it, um, it goes. Well, it actually goes right back to the original game, of course. Mm. I'm old enough <laughs> um, that um, I was one of the original players of the original Elite back in 1985, wasn't it? Mm. Um, so um, I got Elite as a birthday present when I was um, 14. Wow. Oh, sorry, not birthday present, Christmas present. And um, I remember that excitement about opening the box. Now comes the manual and the, the, <laughs> the instruction to the cassette. <laughs> for my for my trusty ZX Spectrum. So I played the original Elite back in the day and I actually genuinely got to Elite without cheating on that version. Impressive. So um something I haven't managed on Elite Dangerous yet, I hasten to add. Um <laughs> but yeah, so the the original game obviously came with a book which was the um The Dark Wheel written by um Robert Holstock and mm-hmm. that kind of started me on the idea of oh look, you can write books and stuff about space. And uh, you know, it's acceptable. So I started writing it. Um you know stuff based on based on the fact that I played Elite and read that book back in the day. So I've really got Elite and the book that came with it to thank for um, you know you know getting me started on the path to writing, um, which is which is quite a nice sort of way to close the whole loop, really. Which yeah, is, no, which absolutely. Is quite cool. I mean, you, you say the path to writing, but also, I mean, were you into um, were you into a space and astronomy before playing Elite games? Because obviously, it's something that you're passionate about now. 
Yeah, I very much was. I was very lucky, actually. When I was seven, uh, my dad took me to a series of Christmas lectures in London, mm. um, which were given by Carl Sagan. Wow. Wow. And, um, he was, he's one of my hit. Well, was one of my heroes. Of course, he's died as well. Mm. Um, and um, I, you know, I sat in the audience there. Um, listening to Carl Sagan talk about space and stuff, and that, and I, that was basically it. I thought that, that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there's uh, there's not very many jobs in astronomy, so I had to sort of settle for computers, which came along in the 80s. But um, um, so I sort of built my career out of that. But yeah, no, um, basically ever since seven, um, I've been into space and science and astronomy and stuff. Unfortunately, my dad was a you know quite a good engineer. He built me a telescope out of bits. Wow. Um, when I was a kid, and uh, we used it to sort of study space, you know, right from the early 70s. And back then, where I lived in um, in the countryside, it was completely pitch black mm. at night, so um, we could see the stars really well. So, yeah, I kind of always had that love of space and astronomy and science and stuff right from a really early age. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm still sat here flabbergasted by the thought of your dad building a telescope out of bits. I mean, how does that come about? I know we're sort of off-topic already, but how yeah, does I mean... that work? <laughs> he um, he was a very clever chap, um, and uh, he you know he was a proper old-school engineer. He had a milling machine in the garage wow. and stuff like that, so he could actually make proper stuff. You know, not like me who makes it out of um, cable ties and bits of my car. <laughs> um, and um, he built me a telescope. He actually ground, can you believe, the lenses I from can't. first principles. Wow. which is an incredibly complicated thing to do, but he did that. Um, the body of the telescope was a um, the inside of a carpet roll tube, um, <laughs> which he kind of reinforced with various other bits and pieces. And then it was just stuck on a, a photographic tripod with a sort of counterbalance to even out the weight. Um, and he made a focus a dial for the lens to go at the other end, and boom, telescope. That, wow. Worked, worked really, really well. <laughs> That's just uh, amazing. Um, and how long did you keep this uh, said telescope for? I think we had it, we certainly had it for four or five years. I can't remember exactly what happened to it, I think, in the end, but um, um, I remember it very fondly. Um, and I think it got superseded once I got into, we got into kind of a computer-guided telescope much later on. But uh, yeah, that was the one I sort of cut my teeth on. And um, But it was one of those, you just basically point at the stars and look at it. Then <laughs> uh, every so often you have to keep moving it because, of course, the Earth's rotating. But um, yeah, no, uh, it was a great way to start. And, you know, I understood the principles of what went into making a telescope right from day one. Wow. Um, yeah, my dad was a quite a clever chap. Um, he built, um, prior to the ZX Spectrum, actually, he built a computer out of bits from first principles as well. He got the wiring diagrams from some electronics magazine and built a, oddly enough, with the same chip that the BBC B computer had. Right. He built a computer on a circuit board that would plug into a telly and do stuff. Um, based on instructions from a magazine, because we couldn't afford a BBC, so wow. you just you just built one, <laughs> as you do, you know. No, 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 Drew. Uh, it's not as you do. Nobody <laughs> just does that. That's just not what so, happens. But so I was lucky. So not only had I seen Carl Sagan and got into space, my dad had built me a telescope. And before I was, before the, even the eighties had started, I was already on my second computer. So I had a massive head start over most of my guys at school because I remember going to school when I was sort of eight and nine and saying, "Oh yeah, we got a computer at home," and everyone was like, "What? Oh, no, you never have it." <laughs> and um, it wasn't. You know, we had a we had a good two year head start on everybody getting their ZX eighty ones and Spectrums and BBCs because. Um, my dad was just into it and he was able to build stuff from scratch wow that's a fantastic story I must admit I mean <laughs> I'm uh, a few years uh, shy of you so my first computer was the ZX Spectrum and I say my first computer it was the first computer I blew up I blew up <laughs> quite a lot of Spectrums during the 80s um, right. 
because they didn't they didn't react well when you spilt uh, liquid over them. And, no, that's not good for them. Not good for most computers. In fairness, yeah. Well, in fairness, they're a little bit more robust these days. But uh, the keyboards, at least. Um, and I then... still actually, I still actually have my ZX Spectrum. It's actually on the wall behind me. Oh, nice. Um, it is still functional, but I haven't got a television I can plug it into anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so one of these days, there's a mod apparently you can do to plug it into HDMI, but I need to figure out um, how to do that. I haven't done that yet. Well, but apparently, it, it did it did work last time I switched it on. So, um, but it's kind of it's kind of a monument on the wall now. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I think the the second Spectrum I blew up. Uh, I pulled the the joystick out of the the back whilst it was switched on, which is a, a it was a massive no no for the uh, the first That's right, computers. That's right. Prize the electronics, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was told by my raging father. Who uh, I think he banned us from computers for the next five years after that. I think the next one we got was a, a ZX Spectrum um, oh, Plus 3 with a disk plus drive. Plus 3 with a disk drive. Oh, that was very posh. It yeah. was very posh. But if you left the disks in the disk, in the thing when you switched it off overnight, it wiped the disks. So uh, <laughs> that, that was a good old days. Yeah, they were the good old days. <laughs> So back to your your potted history with Elite. Then, so obviously you were a big fan of the uh, the game, but the, the game came and obviously it, it lingered around, but then it vanished. Um, what about your your history with the the Oolite guys? So yeah, I mean, I um I I'd missed Frontier uh, Elite Two and First Encounters because I was at university at the time, and um, it wasn't until I kind of left university, got my job, and then. Um, I was dabbling around with Linux and various bits and other pieces of work for some sort of topics of stuff I was doing. And um, I remember thinking, oh, I wonder if there's a version of Elite. They must have ported it to something by now. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just fancied playing it again because, I, you know, my Spectrum was in an attic somewhere. And um, I thought I wouldn't mind playing Elite on the PC. And, um, you know, a bit of an Internet search at the time revealed that, you know, the guys had just got an Elite um, to a kind of stable early drop. Mm-hmm. And, and basically... Elite was simply the original Elite, kind of upgraded with reasonably modern graphics at the time. So the gameplay hadn't really changed much. It was still the original game. Um, but, you know, it worked on the modern computer, which was which was really nice. And the graphics were quite a bit improved, obviously. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I started playing this, joined the forum, which was a new thing for me at the time. This was back, back in about 2004, I think. And, um, you know... Um, yeah, there were lots of chattings. We were all talking about elite and military lasers and all the kind of good stuff that we'd enjoy back in the day. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the dark wheel was one of those things that we chatted about. And um, I met quite a few people on there who you probably still recognize. So um, Dave uh, Dave Hughes was on there back, back at the time. Yeah. And uh, Daddy Hoggy, John Hoggard, was, uh, was there as well. Um, so, you know, people who are still in the elite community now, which is quite nice. And, um, you know, we chatted and talked about stuff and the dark wheel. And there, there was a piece of fiction that somebody had written um, about Oli to kind of introduce it, but it was it was really really short. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a nice little story about Trumbulls and getting your ship infested with, you know, them and, and that. Yeah, so it's a bit tongue in cheek, bit of fun. And um, I remember just posting up, yeah, is anybody going to write a proper novel sort of novella thing for Oli? Because you know the original game came in one. We should have, you know, we're, <laughs> we're putting our all into this one. Why don't we, you know, put, uh, put a novella together for this one? And lots of other people. So, well, it's kind of been tried and, you know, there is that piece of fiction there. But, you know, if you want to have a go, then far away, you know. Um, and obviously at the time there was a bit of sort of, well, we don't want to make we, – obviously we're not selling this because we'll get in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was kind of clear from the, the get-go that it was going to be a free kind of, you know, enjoy it. Um, don't sell it. Just, in, you know, just put it on the internet for free. Um, and so I wrote this story and all I really did was I took the dark wheel and I kind of shuffled it about a bit. 
Right. Um, I swapped the genders around. I updated the kind of imagery and referred to some of the only weapons that you couldn't get in the original Elite and some of the things that have been changed just to kind of give that story a bit of a um, kind of a modern airing more than anything else. And um, it went down really, really well, quite a little bit to my surprise, actually, because I thought it was a little bit, a bit of a throwaway story. But it got really popular and it sort of eventually got, ended up as a sort of the unofficial official novella for the unofficial official <laughs> elite. <laughs> uh, that sort of makes sense. Um, and I ended up writing three sequels to it because everybody, whenever I finish one, everyone says, OK, well, what happens next? I said, no, 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 I'm not writing anymore. Um, and um, they, they kept persuading me to write another one. So um, I ended up with f- four in that series originally. Wow. And recently just added an extra one on to kind of finish it. So <laughs> it did happen because it was just rambling on and on and on otherwise. Um, so... Um, so, yeah, so I kind of got into that. And it was very useful for me because I started writing. I'd, be, I'd been writing a lot, quite a long time before that. But it was a very useful exercise in writing for an audience that was critiquing it instantly. Because mm-hmm. I was doing a chapter chapter online and people would pull it apart for grammar and spelling, which you know, allowed me to up my game there. But also people were, you know, OK, well, I'm not sure about the motivation of this character. Why would they say that? <laughs> parts of it were kind of like, really? And then other parts of it. I was, I was reading it thinking, actually, no, they've got a point. You know, I really need to think about where this is going rather than just writing it. And so it taught me a lot about plot and kind of um, characterization and, and how to string things together in a way that kept people reading rather mm-hmm. than kind of led me. Into it. And it showed me the, you know, the value of planning things in advance. So I knew the way they're going to be. So it did help me develop my kind of skill, really. It sounds like a very painful way to learn your craft, though. It was, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of sink or swim really because you know if somebody said no it's a rubbish story and everyone else would yeah it's loads of rubbish no there's no point reading that then you're kind of dead in the water almost straight away aren't you but unfortunately i never ended up in that i did get i did get some criticism um oddly enough and i discovered much later and he did apologize for it that one of the most vociferous bits of criticism i had was from john harper oh really <laughs> and i it wasn't until much later that we put we put two and two together and realized that we'd been arguing with each other under false names on this forum <laughs> Oh, that was brilliant. <laughs> so, um, but we've since made up, so we're, we're fine. Um, but um, so, yeah, it was quite good. Um, and you know, lots of elite fans basically said, yeah, you've, you've kind of nailed the eliteness of the environment. Yeah, you know, you've got a nice style that works well with that. And you know, we just like your stories. But, you know, that was as far as it went. And I think I finished the last one in about 2008. And basically said, you know, I, I've got my own projects I want to do. I'm going to start getting all those guys. You know, good luck. Enjoy the stories. And, you know, we've had a blast. And um, it sort of was left there then. So is that when you started writing novels like The the Torn Story? And, or did that come yeah, before? Yeah, so Torn was one of those books I wanted to write. So Torn has got nothing to do with science fiction at all. It's it's semi-autobiographical, actually. It's kind of, it's not actually the story of my wife and I, but it is in part the story of my wife and I. Um, and a lot of stuff that happens in there is actually lifted verbatim directly from kind of real life experiences. But it's basically all about me trying to reconcile science and religion in my head. And mm-hmm. the story basically tries to, to kind of go through that. So for some people, it's going to be, yeah, this is an odd book for Drew to have written because that's not what he's really known for. But it was the book I had to write. I had to kind of get it out of the way. Yeah. It was one of those get out of the system type things. And it 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 um it did end up getting published. It, it didn't sell hugely because I think it's quite a niche sort of story but it um i i quite like it <laughs> but it's not what most people would kind of probably associate with me now i suppose well maybe not but the amazon reviews are, are very favorable so yeah it's it's one of those stories where i try to sort of juxtapose you know there, there, there's part of me that is utterly atheistic 
you know, science is all, the universe is just what it is, and we're just lucky to be on this planet looking out at the space around us. And, you know, anything more than that is just in our imagination. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a perfectly reasonable scientific viewpoint as well. And I, I quite subscribe to that a lot of the time. But there's a bit of me that needs the spiritual, needs the mystical, and it, you know, doesn't quite want to let go. Because as a kid, I was taken along to church a lot. And while I've sort of, you know, I don't, I don't actively go to church nowadays there's a bit of me that misses it and yeah. i've never really put it to bed and the, the book was kind of an attempt to understand what the two viewpoints had and the conclusion i came to is that you can't just throw away spiritualism and religion science doesn't fill the gap sufficiently and it was that sort of dichotomy between the two that I was trying to sort of get across. And it's just one of those things I had to get out of my system before, before I did anything else. So um, it, it doesn't come to any earth shattering conclusions, but it does find value in both viewpoints. And I think that's what I was aiming at is a, a bit of tolerance between the two extremes. No, I think that's a it's a subject matter. That certainly, I mean, just listening to you explain it there, it certainly resonates with me. Uh, you know, I obviously went to Sunday school as a kid, and there was a big, yeah. massive amount of sort of community around the the church. And yeah, you're right. You you know, there, there is an element of that which I do miss in my life, and I think that's probably very similar to a lot of people listening to the show. Um, you know, as you get older, especially with with our sort of science fiction heads on and everything else, it's all about the science, and it's very easy to um, you know to sort of poo poo the whole spiritual side of things but you just you know you just don't want to no that's it and, and there was um i mean ever since all of my books since have had an element of religious kind ofness in them i mean even elite reclamation didn't feature it very much but there was a little bit in there there's some sort of mad monks who have yeah. a religion <laughs> there they're in there and in the um the other ones are written my own sci-fi uh, story the shadewood stuff there's there's a very very strong religious element running through that um with the irony being that the the, the religion that they're fighting against technology there is actually underpinned by technology so it's um it's an interesting little play on religion but uh, you know religion versus science science versus religion either kind of at a antagonistic way or just quite subtly is, is, a, is a is a really kind of rich vein to explore because people get very passionate about both and if you've got characters that get really passionate about it, you can make the book quite interesting. So it, it's it's a useful technique, I think. So before we sort of delve into the whole um, the latest saga in the Elite Dangerous Universe that you're embarking <laughs> on, um, you've obviously you have got a lot of plates spinning uh, at the moment. You mentioned it there. You mentioned your your Shadeward saga that's going on at the moment. Give us a little bit of a background into that. Well, Shadeward, I was actually writing. Um, I was about halfway through the first book, I think, when um, the whole elite danger thing suddenly appeared with no warning whatsoever and completely ruined my plans. But um, <laughs> um, so uh, Shadewood was basically I'd got, you know, literally I got to the end of the elite stuff and thought, right, I've, I've sort of scratched the whole elite itch. Um, little did I know, of course. Um, and I thought, I, I thought I've, I've done with that. I don't want to do any kind of more fan fiction stuff. I want to write something a bit more serious and a bit more kind of um, – um, a bit more structured mm -hmm. and the, the the good and the bad about writing in the elite universe is um that lots and lots of background is done for you all the ships everyone knows how the ships work everyone knows how the planets work everyone knows how hyperspace works etc 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 it's all done for you but it's also really restrictive because you have to obey somebody else's rules and you know that's set by um, you know, originally just kind of my interpretation of the way Elite worked, and then later, obviously, by David Braben basically saying, no, it works like this. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's the creator, you've got to obey him. You know, there's no, there's nothing you can do about that. The book yeah. had, you know, Elite Reclamation obviously had to be approved by Frontier. 
So I wanted to write a science fiction story that was my story in its entirety. And I didn't want to have a sort of fantasy Star Warsy feel to, or, or even a Star Trek feel. I wanted something that was grounded in real astronomy so that people reading it would be able to go, actually, this could be happening out there, genuinely could be happening either today or in the very near future. And I didn't want anything in it that wasn't at least plausible based on where our physics was today. And I also wanted a story where I had complete carte blanche about the way the characters started out, where they went and how they lived and died and all those kind of goods and pieces. So it was basically designed to be end to end, entirely my story, telling the sort of stories that I wanted to tell. So I wanted to have, um, you know, characters who went from, you know, kind of what we call good and bad and through various different transformations and all sorts of things. And it, to have a layer of complexity in there that was going to take place over several books. And so I'd kind of I'd outlined the, the four books that I thought I was going to write, started writing the first one um, and was about halfway through it when suddenly, boom, <laughs> Elite Dangerous appeared. Uh, oh, God, I remember that. And, um, you know, it was shelved indefinitely, obviously, because the opportunity to write an Elite book came up. Which um, once I realised it was an opportunity to write an, you know, an elite book, not just you know a fan fiction one, but one that was effectively going to be part of the canon. Yeah. Um, yeah. That opportunity was obviously too. It, it was impossible to resist. So, uh, so Shadewood was um, um, was put on hold for sort of eighteen months, two years, and I managed to get back to it after I'd finished Reclamation, uh, and I've just just launched the second book in the sequence. So I'm halfway through the story now. I haven't started writing the third book. Um, because another book, another Elite Dangerous book, has <laughs> hoved into view and changed those plans as well, which is slightly ironic because I put in the foreword to Shadewood 2 saying, um, I absolutely plan on dropping another book out next year. So I'm instantly lying. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't change it now because, of course, it's gone to print. So, uh, so it's uh, yeah, instantly inaccurate. Um, so there will not be a Shadewood 3 book coming next year, I'm afraid, because I simply don't have time to write it. Well, and this is the thing. So your other... <laughs> Laid plans, etc. Your other property that you're currently working on, your other project, which if you hadn't already had enough pain and enough sort of work <laughs> with one cult computer classic franchise, you go and sign up to another cult computer classic. Maybe you can give a little bit more of a background onto this and why you would do it. Yeah, I know it, it's probably insane. I should, you know, yeah, I do like a challenge to be fair. And I've always been a if opportunity comes your way, you can't slam the door on it. You've got to find a way to make it work, even if it is a bit, you know, oh, uh, how on earth am I going to do that? Well, I'll figure that out in a bit because <laughs> <laughs> um, the excitement kind of gets you going. No, um, I mean, this this other one is um, Lords of Midnight, which for those of you know, all the listeners who um, were, were around in the 8-bit days on the ZX Spectrum will almost certainly remember. It was also ported to the Commodore 64 and the Amstrad CPC, I think, um, but it wasn't as famous on those platforms. But Lords of Midnight was, other than Elite, probably one of the most famous games of that era. Yeah. Um, it, it's not like Elite in the sense it's a, an immediate action game, but um, oddly enough, it did feature procedural generation. It did come with novella. And it did win several awards at the time. So it has quite a lot in common with Elite in, in the sense that it was quite a groundbreaking game in the way it worked and wasn't really bettered on the Spectrum um, at all, even you know, even with all the years that the Spectrum ran after 1984. Um, and it was a, if, if you're brutal about it, 
um, it, it's a it's a complete ripoff of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because basically you have uh, the, the the wizards are replaced by the wise, um, <laughs> the elves are replaced by the fae, and um, you know the kind of lords of Gondor are replaced with the lords of Midnight, um, and you've got a, a dastardly evil villain in the north. Um, who has uh, a, a a a powerful thing called the Ice Crown, which um, um, basically allows him to cast fear and uncertainty across the lands and keep everything in an eternal kind of winter. Um, and the good guys have a a young lad who's sent on a quest to destroy said Ice Crown. And the um, the chap who is kind of the leader of men, Luke's or the Moon Prince, has a has a magic ring. So uh, <laughs> um, that may sound slightly familiar, um, but the way that the, the, the nice thing about it is that the um, the Lords of Midnight was written by a, actually oddly enough an English teacher. He was the kind of last of the great um, bedroom coders. Yeah. So before games became a kind of real proper commercial thing, he was one of the ones that came up with an idea, did all the graphics, did all the text, did all the programming, all himself in the space of about eight months, apparently, and um, created this this fantastic game, which is still remembered to this day. So it's it's not as famous as Elite, but it, it can hold its head up high in that company. And it was certainly my second favorite game on the spectrum of all time. And it's fondly remembered by, a you know, in some ways quite like the Elite community, not as big again, but there is a community of people out there who like the game, who've dissected the code, turned it into a multiplayer version and rewritten it for Android and um, iPhone and all those kind of things. So there's a there's still a community that loves it, and um, and still talks about it. Yeah, I, have, I was I was thinking about this one because obviously it's Mike Singleton, isn't it? Who's only yes, just recently right. died. Yeah, back in 2012. Yeah, this was this was a playground game for me. Um, I heard a lot about it from my best friend at the time, um, Arthur Mole, who everything was all about the uh, the Lords of Midnight. He he played it to uh, to death and at the same time as he was playing Lords of Midnight, I was playing things like uh, Julian Gollop's uh, Chaos. Oh, Chaos playing, Reborn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well not so much Chaos Reborn, just Chaos at the time. Chaos, um, just Chaos, yeah. Battle of the Wizards. And I was also playing things like Rebel Star. But all the time that I was playing all these games, Arthur would only be playing Lords of Midnight. Lords of Midnight. And every yeah. time he'd come to the playground he'd tell me about a completely different <laughs> adventure that he'd had and how many yeah. armies he'd managed to recruit and yeah, he was just absolutely smitten with this game. And I I, I never got involved, but you know, the amount of passion that he had for it, I can really understand how you know there was other people uh, that you're referring to have kept it going. Yeah, it was it was much more of a niche game, I think, than Elite was, because um, it was a, basically it's a, a turn-based um, strategy game, and and the, and the the best way I can describe it is basically it's a game of chess on a sixty by sixty board where you can't see any of the other pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was a text adventure, wasn't it? I mean, that's why I look. No, if I look no, at the no, screens, it looks like a text adventure. It, it kind of was. It, it had text on the screen, but the neat thing about it was that it wasn't a classic text adventure of the type at the time. Because in the older days, you basically had the kind of um, you know, go north, go west, yeah. pick up magic lamp, rub the magic lamp, oh, a genie appears. <laughs> yeah, those sort of text adventures. Yeah. Um, and they would typically have you know maybe a hundred, two hundred locations that were kind of text written into the game. That was it. Mm-hmm. Lords of Midnight didn't do that. What it did is it used um, it used a technique they called landscaping, which meant that it had a map of the landscape built into its code, and then it would render that landscape from whatever direction you were looking at whatever position you were. So what you actually had was, rather than sort of 100 to 200 positions that were in the game, you could visit 4,000 locations, and in each location you could look in every direction and see what the character could see before you. Um, which obviously on an 8-bit computer was quite a feat. Yeah. 
and um, you could only see what the character could see. So if an enemy army was beyond the horizon, you couldn't see it. You didn't know it was there um, unless you had a character in that position looking back the other way. So you could only see where your characters were. So you had this complete fog of war type experience. Um, you know, there was no top down map view of what the action was. You only had what the characters could see. And that was deliberately by design. So you'd be happily, merrily assembling your forces in some other you know, some part of the map hoping to make a stand against the evil baddie coming to get you, when suddenly you'd get news that he'd actually circumvented your army and was now <laughs> four miles to the south, having taken on one of the citadels that he'd left unguarded. So um, and then you then you were like, ah, that's what we do. But it was actually, the gameplay was really compelling because the story sort of told itself that way. Right. Uh, you suddenly think, oh my God, I've been outmaneuvered and they're now proceeding towards my capital city and I'm actually expecting them to be still attacking and then they've, they've got between me. So the computer... The AI is, is is doing it more than justice. It wasn't obviously AI. It was a set of pre-programmed decision points. Yeah. But it was very effective at making you believe that you were up against this implacable enemy who was actually really, really good at outwitting your moves. <laughs> um, and because it was written by an English teacher, the, the language used in the game was very um, advanced for mm -hmm. you know, 13, 14-year-old kids who were playing it. So it, it would say things like, Luke saw the moon prince is utterly invigorated um, and not at all tired. He stands at the gates of Zadjikith awaiting the battle to come. You know, and it had that sort of epicness in the text, which most games didn't, didn't, no, absolutely. didn't have. It took itself very seriously and you, you kind of went along with it. Um, and, um, you know, the, you had a real sense of trekking through this enormous world of midnight, which was every move was about three miles in in kind of in a real sense, you had about eight or nine moves per character per day. That's the furthest they could travel. And you've got a real sense of I'm on a massive journey and I've got to get across this forest and across this mountain range to recruit the Lord of XYZ before he gets killed by the, the rampaging armies, which I don't know if they're there or not. So it's kind of a race against something I can't see. So there was a lot of tension and a lot of excitement in the game, which I think is why people still remember it today, because there was a there was a real sense of you'd achieve something if you managed <laughs> to win. So how um, did you win? Basically, there, there's lots of techniques to, to, to win, but there were there were basically two ways to win. Um, one, you could uh, basically the, the the bad guy. He was called Doom Dark. Um, he had this magical ice crown, which basically was the source of all his power, and you could send one chap who was immune to the, the the power of this thing up to retrieve it steal it and then take it somewhere else for it to be destroyed. That was sort of the quest side of the the game. Yeah. Alternatively, you could basically um, face down the, the hordes of armies that he um, um, threw in your direction and beat him in combat. Or you could try to do a combination of the two. Um, and the um, the quest was actually relatively easy to win uh, once you knew how to do it. But the um, the combat side of things is um, is actually quite difficult to win. It is possible. I did eventually manage to do it, but it um, it's actually a proper challenge. Um, which, given you know the limitations of that eight-bit computer, is actually quite impressive. That it is actually even now, it's quite hard to win. Um, and the first few times you play it, you lose badly, really, really early. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you get the sense of this overwhelming evil power, you know, quickly moving south, devastating your lands, and you're powerless to prevent it. And you find yourself running before these battles, and then. Of course, it simulates tiredness. So as your characters are running for a long time, they can't move as far during the day because they're getting tired and unless you rest them. So you get lots of um, 
choices in the game. Yeah, do I risk them for a day so they can move faster tomorrow, or, is, or are they going to get overtaken tonight and therefore killed because the enemy paddies are hidden behind that mountain? And you've got those decisions every single time you play, um, trying to, you know, what's the enemy doing? Where is he? Because you can't see him until you've actually got visual line of sight. Um, so it's, it, it, you know, for its time, it was very, very clever and very, very exciting. Um, and interesting enough, the publisher of the game um, offered a prize for the first person to complete the game, saying, we will write a book about your adventures. Right. And, um, the you know, you know, kids being kids back then, the first person figured out how to win within about three weeks of the game <laughs> coming out. And... Uh, as they, as they did in those days, printed off. I mean, can you believe it? Oh, and no. the thousands of printed screens that it must have been <laughs> printed off on some 8-bit printer. Um, uh, evidence of you know, his, his journey to, you know, to victory and then sent it off. And um, they, they were so surprised that somebody had managed to do it that they weren't really prepared for this. And they <laughs> eventually fobbed him off with some free copies of some other games. And that was the last that was heard of it. Um, so there was supposed to be a book. And it always kind of annoyed me. I remember being back at, you know, when I was 13, 14, it would be quite nice to have a Lords of Midnight book. Uh, but I hadn't really thought much about it until much, much more recently. And I ended up on Twitter back in, I think it was March this year, just sort of idly browsing and, and the hashtag Lords of Midnight came up. So I clicked on it and two guys were having a chat about um, um, just, just generally Lords of Midnight. And I sort of joined in and said, oh, I, I remember this game. It was really, really good. I haven't played that for years. And one chap says, oh, have you checked out the remakes? I said, remakes? What remakes? <laughs> um, and then um, they copied in the creator of um, the, the chap who had been remaking, who did actually um, know um, Mike Singleton. And um, this was a chap by the name of Chris Wilde, who I'm, who, who I'm now in touch with. And he basically redeveloped. He was originally working with Mike to redevelop the iOS version mm -hmm. and Android version. But uh, yeah, sadly, Mike passed away. And um, then what happened was... Um, um, you know, they were having this conversation. I kind of butted in and said, oh, yeah, I um, 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 I wrote an official elite book. I'd love to write a Lords of Midnight one, to which Chris Wilde simply responded with, it can be arranged. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I could just imagine so your, said, uh, I, your younger yeah. self jumping up and down. <laughs> so I sort of just sent them a text saying, yeah, I'm genuinely interested in this. Take my credentials out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you can look up Elite Reclamation on Amazon. And he says, "Oh no, I've already done that." <laughs> of course, yeah. And, and and so we we just arranged to meet up in London. We had a very nice meal in a pub, and and that was that really. So um, I was suddenly writing the official Lords of Midnight book as well. So um, which is something I said I'd never do actually because um, I thought you know I don't want to write in another fan fiction franchise because I want to do with my own stuff but you know it's just one that i couldn't resist <laughs> no, I, <laughs> so I have a weakness for 8-bit computer games <laughs> so, so when's this um how far through are you and when's it due for uh, when you're hoping it's going to be released to the world well we've got a plan because the original game was set on the winter solstice we wanted to launch it on the winter solstice um and i said to chris i'm uh, you know i just won't be able to make it this year this, this is impossible mm. um so we're going to publish it on december the 21st 2017 wow um on the eve of the winter solstice which is the height of the witch king doom dark's power so it seemed like a good moment to <laughs> good moment to launch it so it'll be coming out winter next year basically so it's about a year away right now i'm um, the word count is about forty-seven thousand words so i'm probably just over a third of the way through um, but it's it's proving fun because it, it's an utter fantasy story. So there's magic and there's um, 
you know, there's witchcraft and all that sort of stuff, which is a complete change from the world of elite or even the Shadewood stuff I've been working on. So it's quite nice to indulge in a bit of fantasy because the rules are a lot easier to play around with. You haven't got to go, oh, no, I can't do that. Laws of physics. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I can indulge a bit in some sort of magic and some, you know, some stuff like that. And, and I, yeah, and the language is a bit more fun because I can, I can split things in twain and, <laughs> and, and use some sort of slightly more, um, kind of fantasy prose in there which is which is which is quite good fun which obviously you can't do in elite and stuff like that so um so yeah so that one's coming that one's coming out next year i'm i'm thrilled for you i really am but it's just funny talking about not having to stick to rules and you know maybe <laughs> being a little bit more um sort of free to do what you will you've really sort of set yourself a a massive uh challenge i must admit i've written down a number of attempts to try and capture the craziness the madness that is what you and Frontier are embarking on with your next book, Premonition, but I've completely failed to get over the scope of the project you are embarking on. Maybe you can do it better, or if, if nothing else, maybe you can just tell me what you guys are there and at Frontier are smoking, so that maybe I can join in. <laughs> no, if, if I try and think about it too hard, I get panic attacks, so I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, actually, I must admit, I do try not to think about it too hard, because genuinely I get a little bit scared, because... Um, yeah, very much when I was writing Elite Reclamation, I thought, oh, God, you know, these people have paid me some money to write an Elite book. I better do a good job of it. <laughs> um, and I was really worried when I launched Elite Reclamation. I hope I've done a good enough job. Um, and that's that's about 10 times worse this time around because I've kind of got – I feel like I've got the entire Elite community, you know, not only the people who were around at the Kickstarter time, but everybody who's now on board since. And uh, I've told that's about 1.5 million players. So no pressure at all. <laughs> so no pressure. <laughs> I try not to think about that too much. And that. Just, just, just write and just hopefully it comes out the best. So, um, but yeah. So, um, so give us the scope yeah. of it. What exactly are you planning to do? So, first of all, congratulations on getting the the license for it. Congratulations for taking on the project. Uh, it couldn't be in a safer pair of hands. But my yeah, word, like, what a project yeah. you've taken on. It, it is, it is a bit overwhelming. I mean, what? Um, I actually had a conversation with Frontier about this time last year. I think it was saying, um, come on, guys, are we ever going to do any more books? <laughs> because <laughs> that conversation had been rumbling on for months and months and months and months and months. Um, and um, I was kind of trying, I was fishing a bit because I wanted to know if I had space to get on with my Shadewood saga or not. Because yeah. once I've started a book, I don't really like to put it on hold. And I wasn't, I was hoping that I wouldn't have to do that again because, you know, it, it just had been a bit awkward because I, I like to try and keep to a schedule. Um, Michael Brooks basically said to me, yeah, we are definitely going to do something. We'll we'll contact you in, I think it was you know, before the end of the year. And then before the end of the year, you know, Christmas happened. And then it was January. And then it was, I think, February. <laughs> <laughs> this is sound very much like Frontier to me. The, the Frontier <laughs> suit, you know. Um, and But yeah, I think it was end, either end of February or early March. They suddenly said, right, can you come up to our offices and we'll have a chat about books? So I said, yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I found my way up there, which was quite nice because I hadn't been to the office before. And um, you know, they gave me a little bit of a tour of stuff, which was which was very nice. Yeah. And um, and they basically sat me down and basically said, well, um, we're not going to do the licenses the same way as before. And that was kind of well, that's okay because the Kickstarter was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank was, God, was, was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, there was a, yeah, obviously a little bit of sort of commercial stuff built in there. But they, what they basically came out with is, we don't want a story that is kind of tangential to the elite universe. Um, uh, what they what they were conscious of is they'd put quite a lot of effort into stuff that was going on behind the scenes, but they were sort of not struggling, but trying, finding it difficult to get 
across in the game due to the way the game is because mm-hmm. you know you, you can't read acres of text on the screen yeah. in in a game they they couldn't get across some of the dynamicness of what was happening behind the scenes galnet just isn't quite sufficient enough to do that and um you know they were conscious and and you know i'd criticize them to be fair and um, they were gracious enough not to not to be mean to me about it but um <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd criticize them a bit online about the power play stuff saying mm-hmm. it was a bit bland and the characters were a bit two-dimensional and stuff and and they, i think they must have either taken that on board or they were just being very very polite because they basically said we'd like that to be a bit um you know, we we want some more detail around that and we you know that's the sort of stuff we want to see in the story there is all this complexity going on around the scenes behind the scenes which we can't bring up to the front in the game very well and we'd like somebody to try and articulate it so i thought well that sounds quite interesting um so i sort of buzzed a few ideas around with them sent them back and then basically i came away from there and i wrote them up a a sort of outline story not too much detail and then sent it in and they said yes this is really good and we've got this change and then i had this kind of email ding dong with david brayman which was great fun um, (laughs) because i'd come up with an idea and he'd say no and then i'd come up with another idea and he'd say nope um (laughs) change all the names (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's not allowed to happen this isn't that happen and it, it went on for a while like that, actually but no it was very productive to be honest it was good fun yeah but he knows you know his, it's, it's his universe absolutely and, you know, he, that, that's that's the way it works and um you know, me being all arrogant oh well, i knew this stuff like the back of my hand but you know, he's the boss <laughs> at the end of the day. You, you've got to um you've got to do what he says um and you know we we ping pong this around for a little while and then it all went quiet again and i remember thinking oh so you know i blotted my copybook or something <laughs> did i say the wrong thing and um it went quiet for quite a few months you know all the way through spring and into early summer and then i was almost at the point of sending sort of sending an email thinking you know is this ever going to happen or have i just kind of wasted another six months and i'm going to write another when suddenly they said um can you come up to the office again we need to discuss the story and some other bits um because we want you to start writing from august <laughs> oh quick. quick deleting the email he was about to send um so i popped up there again and we basically um you know they they you know they had to obviously under nda you know, tell me a whole bunch of stuff that they're planning which was obviously quite exciting for me mm-hmm. um which i'm obviously not allowed to say anything about um but um we what they actually wanted at that point they said we want you to tell the story behind what's happening in elite dangerous um and you know kind of articulate what is behind power play and what is happening you know around the barnacles and why is the federation doing weird stuff out there and what's paling up to and you know all these kind of bits and basically try and hook those into a story that people want to read and i said well that's going to be quite tricky because <laughs> you don't know what the players are going to do <laughs> they said yep that's why we're asking you to do it <laughs> i mean just that um, and it's that in itself and considering how much you you said you you loved being able to sort of plan a story and know where it's going, how much does it fill you with fear about the fact that you could be writing a story and then the, the player base can just take the story into a completely different direction? Well, it has happened. Um, I've already, this has happened twice actually since I've started, is that I've had to trash a section of the story. Not, not too badly. I've had to rewrite one bit and actually delete a section because it doesn't happen the way I expected <laughs> it to happen. You, you can predict it a bit because in some ways the players are quite predictable. In in the majority of cases, they'll always go for the money. Right. Um, but they, they actually just literally just today, they've surprised me a little bit. 
Um, not not entirely, but they've surprised me by not going for the money. Um, so you, you can never predict them in, in, with any degree of certainty. And of course, you don't know the specifics as well. So, you know, I've had a, you know, I've been talking to some of the, the commanders who've made some of the big discoveries like the crashed um, scout ships that we found and yeah. the, you know, the barnacles and the, and the weird um, uh, mushroom things and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, getting their first-hand experiences of what they felt like when they were kind of discovering sorts of things. And you kind of get this amazing sense of character from these from these kind of interviews and um, trying to my best to make sure those are represented in the book. But those are those are events that happen. But the outcome of CGs and the outcome of, um, you know, federal versus imperial conflicts, you just don't know in advance what that's going to be. So you've kind of got to adapt um, on those things. So what I've been doing is I came up with um, do you remember the old fighting fantasy books? Yes, indeed. Um, where you know, Ian Livingston, you, wasn't it? That's it. Yeah, and um, that's it. And yeah, on page fifteen, yeah, if you turn left, page turn to page twenty-six. <laughs> if you want to fight the orc, turn to page twenty-three. That sort of stuff. Um, so I've kind of designed. I, I have planned out a story, um, and, and Frontier has obviously a whole bunch of elements that they're they've got prepped, mm-hmm. um, and I know what those are. But we don't know if and when some of them will get used. Um, uh, depend, it depends a little bit on what happens. And, um, you know, things like the, the Jack's Colony being um, um, being found when it was and then um, Colonia and all the other bits and pieces that happened around there and things like Beagle Point are completely unscripted. Frontier didn't know that they were going to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so they've kind of, like, oh, uh, well, we need to do something then. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, the, you know, so they're reacting to it. So it, it, it genuinely is a very dynamic thing. Uh, and my response to that, being here, you know, thinking, well, I've got to write a story that will will work. It's got to have a beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah. Is to come up with a sort of like a skeleton of stuff that can probably happen regardless, but then tag some of the events on and weave into it the things that do actually happen. Um, so my approach has been to have a kind of core skeleton of events that are hopefully reasonably static and then use that to kind of pull in other bits and pieces as I go along. And it's worked quite well most of the time um, <laughs> thus far, but it, 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 it's, it's certainly much, much more of a challenge to write a, a story that people are going to afterwards going to go, yeah, that's a, that's a good story end to end. Um, and it doesn't feel too disjointed. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have, you know, come editing time, it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> um, because at the moment it, it is very disjointed because it's just, I'm writing as fast as events are happening, mm-hmm. trying to make sure I capture them in almost close to real time and then just dump them into the story. Um, and I'm going to have to go back and edit them for pace and length and style and all sorts of stuff. Um, kind of when I get there, but, um, I, I did skim through it very quickly. Um, you know, as far as I've got to so far, and actually, it, it's it holds together surprisingly well. I mean, it's it's still rough and ready at this point in time, but I, I, I'm I'm surprised how well it does work. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is kind of quite raw state, so um, I'm I'm optimistic at the moment. I think it's probably the probably the, the answer. Fabulous. So it doesn't sound like you're writing a, a book by committee, but the fact that you're you're sitting there in in Frontier Towers and you're discussing all of this, who who's in a meeting like that from the uh, from the game development side? Well, you've got um, obviously Michael Brooks, um, who's um, font of all knowledge. And it's quite nice because he knows, because he's a writer himself, he kind of knows where I'm coming from Mm -hmm. in some of the the difficulties I have with with the structure and the characterization and stuff. And um, he's kind of the arbiter of... Um, yeah, the way things happen. So, yeah, you know, I, if I have a question on the way Patrius or Patrius um, 
acts then you know i'll go to him for kind of a, okay well in this given situation what what do you think uh, you know how do you think he would respond what sort of things he's going to come out with and we'll discuss what that kind of looks like yeah um so that we get a consistent sort of characterization of that um the other chap um and, and huge props to him is um, ian uh, dingwall who's um the one of the main writers actually at frontier who does a lot of the the galnet stuff yeah and puts together all the cgs and and you know prior to actually working directly with Frontier, I had no idea how complicated that is. <laughs> you kind of think, they just bang a couple of articles up on a website and the job done, you know. Well, that's exactly what you do think. So how is it different? It, it's not like they told A, you've got to, um, yeah, you, you, obviously there's the kind of grammar and copy checking and there's the, the um, all that kind of good stuff, the sort of standard stuff you'd expect for, for writing. But um, they've actually obviously got an archive of every single Galnet article that goes back to whenever the game started. And, that, and the wow. whole thing has to be consistent. So when you're talking about a character, you have to bear in mind what they've previously done. Mm -hmm. And so everything has to kind of be double checked against that. And they're trying to allow as many... Um, you know, kind of user-submitted, uh, player-submitted articles in there as well. But checking that those don't conflict with anything that's gone before, um, you know, is, is a minefield. And, you know, all the CGs, they obviously have to align as well because they're kind of generally factional or super-faction-based. Um, and all of those things have to be translated into multiple languages. So you're not just doing it in English. You're doing it in French and German Oof. and Russian and Spanish and... <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, you're absolutely so, right. So all of that stuff. So the the advance notice you need to have for some of this stuff is, um, you know, is 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 months ahead of when you actually think of using it. And then when you couple that with the complexity that the players can come along and trash your storyline, <laughs> it's really really long. Oh, right, this brilliant article. We can't run it now because that's now no longer happened. And we've translated it into four languages, and oh that's really annoying. God, that must be so soul destroying. So it, it is a bit frustrating. And there's lots of instances where that have happened. And so there's an awful there's a massive body of work, um, both that I've got and Frontier's got, that will never see the light of day because um, the players killed it. Sorry. <laughs> and and we, we can't even tell you what it was because we can't reveal otherwise that tells something else. So, you know, for every everything that you do publish, there are probably almost amount, the same amount of stuff that never sees the light of day because wow. it gets trashed by the outcomes of some of the other stuff. And and, and the sad thing is that you, you never get any credit for it <laughs> because everyone go, well, it's not there. Show it to us. Well, we can't show it to you. Well, it's not there then, is it? You know, so um, unless it's online, it doesn't exist. So, um, you know, the, it, it, it is very, very complicated. Um, and then when you combine that with trying to make sure that any in-game text that you come up with um, is is consistent as well so everything that you see in the mission boards and everything that you see in the cg text and everything you see in the little um i picked up a, a a strange artifact and it's come back with a piece of text on the screen all of that stuff has to be consistent again mm -hmm. it all has to be checked and quite often it has to if it's if it's anything contentious and i wrote um a few bits about t and isla and of course that had to go straight up to the top of the tree to david braben to yeah. get approved um, and then, of course, it has to come back down again. And then if you think, actually, you know, I need to make a tweak to that, <laughs> send it all the way back up to the top again. Think, oh, no, what a night. <laughs> so there's multiple, you know, it, it's very, very tricky. And it's, it's basically all aimed at just trying to make sure it's all consistent. And, mm -hmm. and we still don't get it right. There are still things that go wrong. Um, and um, But you're dealing with not a huge crowd of people for a very um, complicated game. Yeah. And obviously it's multiplayer and there are thousands and thousands of players online at any given moment in time. And then um, you've also got the, the, the difficulty that the, 
<laughs> the slightest thing that goes wrong, there's instantly a forum thread <laughs> <laughs> or a Reddit thread or, or you know, a Twitter, a Twitch storm about it. You um, missed a semicolon on the, you know, oh my God. You can't, um, you can't poo-poo the fact we have a very active community, no, Drew. No, and absolutely love it to death. But um, yeah, the spotlight of attention is a little bit fierce at times. I can, um, yeah, I can well imagine. And, and I know that, um, I know that Crash, um, John Virgo has experienced it as well. You know, you say something relatively, I said something innocuous, I think a few weeks ago on Twitter. Um, something like, uh, oh, just make sure that you've got your, your um, elite um, clients up to date next Thursday. Because I knew that something was starting. <laughs> just Obviously, it's the Thargoid invasion starting now. <laughs> the Thargoids are coming. I didn't say that. When did I say that? Um, and, um, you know, people... Yeah, get get very excited about these, and then and which is great. But um, then when it, when whatever it is that they were expecting doesn't happen, it's obviously all my fault as well. So, I mean, <laughs> either that... you say nothing or you say something, but you just you always lose. <laughs> but on that front, though, um, I mean, for anybody that obviously listens to the show on a regular basis, they'll know how much I hate spoilers. Yep. You have now gone completely behind the curtain. Yeah, you've seen all the workings, yes. all the nuts and bolts. You've seen the guy in the strange green outfit. Has that? diminished your love of the universe has it heightened it do you still play the game uh in the same way or has it sort of tainted your view on it all no it hasn't really um it's um you know because i'm kind of writing this book the moment i'm in my writing mode i switch on the laptop i fire it up and sitting on the train as 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 before i'm still sitting on the train um, (laughs) writing this book um the moment i'm writing i'm i'm immersed to use that word nowadays um yeah i'm there i'm in the universe i'm just enjoying the whole you know, elite thing. And I think it's because I love writing and love reading so much that um, when I'm playing the game, when I'm writing the book, I'm just, I'm just in the universe. That's it. Boom. I'm completely out of anything else that was going on. It hasn't destroyed the, the magic of right, just one more jump, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it's still, you know, that's still as vibrant for me. There is no better way for me. I think it, you know, to experience the, the feeling of flying through space in a spaceship. Yeah, it, that's what Elite Dangerous still does. That's what the original Elite did for me back in the day. Um, so no, I haven't lost any of that magic at all. Um, you know, I do know some of the stuff that's coming, but um, you know, I'm quite yeah, I'm still excited to see how everyone's going to react to it. Um, you know, if and when various things do do happen, um, and being able to embed my own content into the game as part of that. Because you know, Frontier very generously have basically said, well, you know, if if there's things in the story that you want to occur and want to be part of that, then just just roll it in, and um, you know, as long as you give us notice, we can we can embed things in the in the game universe as well. So I've had the opportunity to do that, and people have just started finding them in the last few weeks, um, and it's been like, hey, they found some of my stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and that's been really exciting because you think there's, there's things in the elite universe which people are now puzzling over and trying to figure out what they are, which you've put in there um, and watching some of the forum threads of people try and work out and some people are quite close to the truth and others are completely you know off their bat <laughs> going down the wrong way but watching people discuss it and get excited about it and enjoy the experience of finding out and and you know and the role-playing community around it is is absolutely phenomenal i mean the um the, you know one of my main characters is making a obviously a bit of a comeback in the story um i'm using that as a bit of a device to kind of hold everything together is the um is the kahina character and um 
you know, she's she's got a bit of a fan club now. She's actually got a faction that's dedicated to supporting her. She's got people who hate her. She's got people who like her, people who are indifferent to her, people who are trying to get her killed. And they're all player groups. And it's, it's <laughs> and they're all role-playing, trying to vie with each other in the game <laughs> to get the upper hand on those sort of things. And you think it was, it's, it's, it's a really cool construct to have something that you've written inspire gameplay. It's not something I ever anticipated actually doing. Um, and, um, you know, I wrote Elite Reclamation as, as, as something for the fans of the original game and hopefully something that kind of worked well with the, the current game. But obviously when I wrote it, there was no Elite Dangerous. This was It was all before the alpha. Um, whereas now people are extrapolating from the book um, and, and, and making their own player stories. And I've been able to pull some of those player stories into this new book and give them a bit of, you know, what's going on behind the scenes of these people as they kind of undertake these roles. So, you know, there's um, the characters from my book are now going to interact with player characters who have been created by the players who I've then watched what's happened and then gone, I really like that idea. I'm going to put that into the new book. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a fascinating kind of way of uh, having my content and player content and frontiers content all kind of mixed up together into this massive, this massive new thing. I mean, it must be weird though, because it's, it's it's your creation come to life, and come to life in a completely different way to, you know, what most authors must see. I mean, okay, you've got you know, your Game of Thrones that's come to life on the screen and stuff, but yeah, you know, this is coming to life in a completely different way, in a way that sort of, you know, your your fans, your you know, your readers are actually taking taking the characters and, and putting a story in it to themselves. Yeah, that's it. I mean, they're they're they're. They're, they're role playing and inventing around the you know the the, the stuff that I've written, um, but but building their own stories um, and um, you know they're they're loving that and I I don't you know I haven't got time to keep up with everything but I try and do some of the stuff and you know I've got um, there's a there's a faction in the Prism system now which is tasked with the defence of that system yeah. against you know against the Federation and um, you've got um, a, a group called the Children of Raxler who are um, who kind of adopted um, Kahina as their leader, and every time something happens to her, they go up in arms and they've they've UA bombed the station and they've 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 attacked an, an imperial outpost and all sorts of stuff and they've got into quite a lot of trouble and then they've got other people who are now don't like them and are thus actively working against them, which just adds another layer of role play to it. Um, and this is all happening, all these different groups, um, and you know we had this CG which was a competitive one for exploration data in the last couple of weeks. Um, and basically, it was basically the Federation trying to, to get some exploration data and the children of Rector competing against them. So it's called the David versus Goliath, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the children of Rector just literally this afternoon won it by a considerable margin. Um, and, um, you know, that's going to trigger some other events in the game as a result of, uh, of what the players have done. And it, w- what I've noticed is that a whole bunch of independent player factions have basically come together and decided, no, we're not going to let the Federation get away with this. <laughs> so I think you've got, I think it's about eight or nine, possibly even 10 different player factions have all, you know, over the last two weeks gone on a concerted effort to decide basically we're going to beat the Federation at their own game. And they have, which is, which is like really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all in response to this story, which is which which is fantastic. So that's one aspect of uh, of people's reaction to uh, to your work. Obviously, you've just come back from uh, from Fantasticon, where you had the first sort of live reading, uh, the first time people have actually heard snippets from the book. How did that go down? It was it was very well received, actually. The um, the lead up to it was quite interesting because when I 
did of the elite reclamation i was i i could just do it myself i was promoting my book on behalf of myself hoping that people would buy it um so whatever i came up with it was i just had complete carte blanche to whatever it was this time it isn't actually my book <laughs> um, yeah i'm writing it for frontier they'll be publishing it and it's it's their ip not mine uh, at the end of the day I'm, I'm the author writing for them and um what um what that means is that I have to get approval for everything. I can't just go and market it myself. Mm -hmm. I've got to make sure that the Frontier's happy with it. So I basically said, you know, I'm going to go to Fantastical and I want to do a reading. Is that okay? Yes. Um, but you need to submit your reading and anything else you use in advance to us so we can approve it. So I had to, <laughs> so I had to jump through extra hoops. So I had to put together a video and then send it off and get comments back. And, you know, Michael Brooks was very helpful again and, and, and working all that sort of stuff. But all that had to be approved in advance. Mm -hmm. So... Um, and of course, we don't really want to give away in a reading um, to a, obviously what's going to be a relatively limited audience of the of the overall elite community anything that's too um, you know contains too much in the way of spoilers. Um, so we 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 went for a very early section of the book rather than a kind of mid range section where other other interesting stuff would go be happen. But we obviously wanted it to still be interesting. So <laughs> it's a it's a very difficult balancing point. But basically, yeah, we did a, we did a reading, and I and I was able. And what's quite nice is I was able to use all the official elite um, elite dangerous um, badges and monikers um, and stuff. <laughs> yeah, all the badges and uh, and the graphics and the music as well, which was which was nice. So the familiar menu music that you have oh, when you're loading the game yeah. is, is the background to the reading, which is which is quite nice, um, and it fits really really well with what I was saying. Um, and it gave me an opportunity just to sort of set the tone for what the story is about. And without giving too much, the 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 reading is all about basically it kind of takes you from where we were when Reclamation and all the other elite novels kind of let off to where we are kind of going into now where everything's a little bit more claustrophobic. We know something is out there. Uh, we know it's probably heading this way, but we don't know why. We don't know when. And nobody is being very truthful about what's going on. We can see the Empire and the Federation are kind of gearing up. Um, we can see there's trouble around us. We can see people are mysteriously going missing and then coming back. But what's what's connecting all of this stuff underneath? And the, and the reading basically kind of starts you off down that track. And just as you're about to get a bit of a revelation, of course, it stops. But um, that's the, you know, that's the nature of a teaser, isn't it? Um, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot more sort of threatening and ominous than it was before. Um, so there's that there's that sense of kind of impending doom, which is why I chose the, um, the title Premonition. Um, obviously, I wanted a shun at the end. <laughs> Just sort of, it's a bit of a theme for me, actually. Everything I've written recently has got a shun at the end. But um, it, it, it kind of sets the thing. You know, stuff is afoot um, and things are coming our way. Um, and it's, a, yeah, premonition has kind of got this slightly sinister overtone. So, um, and, yeah, we know that David Braben's also said winter is coming. So, um, yeah, winter. Yeah, and, and the, the only sort of spoiler I can really give there is winter is almost here. <laughs> brilliant okay well drew we're gonna wrap that up there i think it's an exciting place to leave this interview can we possibly uh ask you to come back as you do more writing as more things change as more things get revealed by uh, frontier themselves as the story progresses you certainly can um i think um yeah early next year you know i'm, I'm planning to finish a first draft i think by the end of march so some some serious stuff should have happened by then fantastic stuff well we can't wait i certainly can't wait so i still think you're mad uh but i'm i'm, 
I am thrilled about your madness because I think it's going to be a really enjoyable ride. Um, but best of luck with it until we speak to you again, Senator. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Always a pleasure, Commander, and, uh, and fly safe. They used to say which space was haunted. Haunted by the ghosts of ships that first went out there and never came back. But it's not haunted. It's stalked. Stalked by the superpowers. Federal, Imperial and Alliance. Each vying for superiority amidst the harsh and radiation-soaked vacuum of space. Led by powerful figureheads playing a game with entire star systems as their pieces. Stalked by the factions, who squabble and fight under a thousand different banners in an endless cycle of conflict to secure a patch of transitory territory, each struggling to assert its will across stations, outposts and systems. Stalked by pirates, who prey on an interdict ships in the hope of securing a lucrative cargo from a hapless trader. Most kill by necessity fighting to keep their ships running and put food on the table. Some kill because they enjoy the pain, slaughter and mayhem they cause. Stalked by bounty hunters, those who look to make money from the crimes and misfortunes of others, their ships bristling with advanced weaponry. Hard-nosed and callous, only credits count in their measurement of all that is worthy. And stalked by the traders, the masses who scour the space lanes for their next best profit run, ferrying goods and cargo from one place to another on an endless quest to better themselves, afford a bigger or more luxurious vessel, and retire to a planet somewhere quiet and safe. But it isn't safe out here. It's dangerous. If you live and work in space, you take your choice and choose your role. No one tells you what to do. The only certainty is uncertainty. Watching your scanners for the trace of another ship which you must assume is hostile, because the chances are, it is. Only a few look beyond the artificial boundary that rings the edge of civilization. A hundred light years is but the tiniest moat when weighed against the splendor and scale of the galaxy. There are rumors, of course. Ships that return from long ventures in the void with crews gone insane, or ships that are found abandoned in the darkness. The tales tell of lost planets, ancient civilizations, and strange beacons. It's said by some that humanity did encounter another race out here. If so, it was decades before, and that first encounter did not go well. Perhaps the barriers between harmonious coexistence were too great. The differences in habitat and culture insurmountable. What few accounts are available suggest that human and alien retreated to lick their wounds. Perhaps they will return. Perhaps they're already here. Yet for those who can see, the signs are there. Curious growths have been seen on planets not far from the boundaries of the core. Nicknamed the barnacles, these strange entities defy classification or explanation. 
Other explorers have encountered strange probes and artifacts drifting amongst the stars, emitting signals which contain coded information pointing to something. Still more have tracked clues that lead out into the darkness, across barren rifts of space, but seem to lead to dangerous dead ends in the depths of nowhere. But perhaps there are those who know more. Who is to say what secrets lie hidden in vaults, encrypted documents and sealed memories? While some strive to shine a light on the truth, others may work equally hard to keep that knowledge concealed. They might take the view humanity isn't ready for those revelations, working in secret for hundreds of years, protecting humanity from itself. Standing above the factions and even beyond the remit of the Empire, the Federation and the Alliance, concerning themselves with the enduring and not the ephemeral. They might well fear a premonition of things to come. Two seconds, I'll be right back.